Today we get the opportunity to uh, begin this weekend a brand new sermon series here at Friends Church. And this sermon series is entitled Stand Out, Stand Out. And the motivation for this sermon series actually comes from a message that we gave back in our Habits series. And a few weeks ago, you may remember, we, we gave a message on the, on the habit of evangelism, going out and sharing our faith. And in that message, we looked at a passage where Jesus says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we talked in that message about how Jesus wants us to stand out in this world. And it's through our good deeds that we lead other people to Jesus Christ. Well, we thought that we would do a series here in the month of November where we talk about some of those good deeds, some of those qualities, some of those character qualities that we can adopt and practice as Christians that help us to stand out in this world. And these lists of character qualities, we're going to look at three. And we've taken them from a very famous list in the Bible called the Fruit of the Spirit. And it's found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. And, and there, the Apostle Paul, one of the early followers of Jesus, he, he lists ultimately nine things that are to characterize us as Christians. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we've, we've chosen three of them to look at, one over each of the next three weeks. And today, we're going to look at the subject of kindness. The subject of kindness. And I want to read ahead of time the passage we're looking at today. Uh, I'm in Luke 10, but I'll give you a, a, some time in a moment to, to open up this passage. I just want you to listen to it. You can also follow along on the screen. But in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, this is what we read. It says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Verse 29, but the man wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let's pray as we get prepared to look at God's word together. Father God, we just thank you for this um, just this incredible section of scripture, Lord, and uh, the truth that is present in it, Father. And uh, God, I, I regret this weekend that I'm not able to explore this passage in, in all of its depth the way that I, I would like. But Father, I hope and I pray that this past week you have directed me to what it is that you want me to say here this weekend. And so Father, I, I just pray in the name of Jesus, God, <clears throat> that you would direct uh, what I say here today, Father. I pray ultimately that your Holy Spirit would be um, who speaks, God. And I pray, Father, um, that as that happens, that all of our hearts would be changed as a result of what we hear today. And so, God, we just give this time completely over to you. May your will be done in it. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can go ahead, grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 10 is where I'd ask you to turn. Luke chapter 10. 
And as you turn there, we're going to put, <coughs> excuse me, so I'm getting over bronchitis, just to warn you. Uh, I'm getting a lot better, actually, but I still have a little lingering cough, so you're going to have to bear with me in this message. But as you turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to put a phrase on the screen, and it is one of those phrases that I'm going to ask you to repeat after me, but I want to read it first, okay? The phrase is this, it's kindness to all people at all times in all places. Kindness to all people at all times in all places. I want you to repeat after me, but we're going to go really slowly in this. We're going to kind of take it a a word at a time, a phrase at a time, and we're going to begin just with the word kindness. So repeat after me, and remember, this is repeat after me and not say it with me. Okay, you got it? Okay, ready? Let's go. Kindness Kindness. to all people people. at all times times. in all places. places. Again, kindness Kindness. to all people people. at all times. In all places. places. One final time, this time say it like you really mean it. Ready? Kindness. Kindness. To all people. people. At all times. times. In all places. places. Good job, 11 o'clock service. Good job. Today, we're going to see the importance of this statement right here. This past week, in the lead up to the election on Tuesday, (coughs) excuse me, I came across an interesting article online I want to share with you. Uh, This article is written by Penn Gillette, and Penn, in case you don't know, is one half of the famous magic duo Penn and Teller. He's the taller guy, the guy with glasses, if you can picture that duo. And in this particular article, he was answering the question, remember this is right in the lead up to the election on Tuesday, he was answering the question, what kind of America do you want? What kind of America do you want? And I thought his answer goes right in line with what we're talking about here today, so I want to read a large portion of it to you. We'll also have this on the screen. In response to the question, what kind of America do you want? This is what he wrote. He said, I used to be libertarian. I used to be atheist. I used to want America to be more atheist libertarian. All my voting, preaching, discussing, and complaining reflected those desires. I'm still libertarian and atheist, and now I'm vegan too, but none of that matters anymore. I no longer care. All I want out of America now is kindness. That's all. The past few years have filled too many of our friends and neighbors with hate, and it breaks my heart. Some people started acting hateful, crazy, and nasty so that they could win, and then people who disagreed with them acted the same way. They disagree in content, but agree wholeheartedly in tone. So many of us now agree with the message of hate and play ideology as team sports. My friends who work on TV, people I love personally, are using a tone and a meanness in their jobs that they never used before. Is hate where the money is? I don't know if fighting fire with fire actually works, but I do know fighting hate with hate never works. He continues on, I'm like a dog. I don't hear words anymore. I just hear tone. Anyone whose tone is kind will get my complete support. Libertarian, Democrat, Republican, Socialist, Green, anything else you got. He says, I've always been left out of team sports. I don't want to win enough. I'm not a part of a team. I'm part of humanity. I want kindness. There's no other team for me. Let's love each other and then discuss how to run our country together. Yeah. Not bad for a libertarian, atheist, vegan, is it? Now, I don't know if you agree with everything that he says. I don't know if I agree with everything that Penn says, but you know what? I agree with the major thrust of his article. We need more kindness in our country today. We need more kindness. What exactly is kindness? According to the Bible, which is what we're always interested in here, what exactly is kindness according to the Bible? 
Well, this past week, I, I did a study of it, and, and at the end of my study, I, I wrote my own definition. And whenever I do this, it's always a little bit dangerous. It's not perfect, but I think it gets at the biblical definition of kindness well enough. According to the Bible, this is what I think kindness is. Kindness is treating others in the way that you yourself would want to be treated, with love, generosity, and compassion. Kindness is treating others in the way that you yourself would want to be treated with love, generosity, and compassion. I think at the end of the day, kindness is really what's at the heart of what is commonly referred to as the golden rule. And some of you may know this, some of you may not, but Jesus himself is the one who came up with the golden rule. I have that reference there, Matthew 7, 12. And in Matthew 7, 12, Jesus says this. He says, in everything, in everything, he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. Treat others in the way that you would want to be treated. And although I'm sure there are some exceptions to this, I can't think of very many people who would not want to be treated with love, generosity, and compassion. And that's what kindness is. It's treating others in the way that you yourself would want to be treated. With love, generosity, and compassion. And if Penn is right, and if kindness is in short supply these days, and in some places it does seem like it is, here's what I want to let you know. We Christians are called to do something about that. We Christians are called to change that. That's exactly what we learn in this incredible, incredible passage that I read just a minute ago in Luke chapter 10. When I knew I was talking on kindness today, I knew immediately that this is the section of scripture that I wanted to go to. Because although the words that we're going to read today, although they are 2,000 years old, this story today, brothers and sisters, it is a story for our time right now. It is a story for where we are as a nation right now. The story begins one day in Jesus' ministry. Jesus, as he often is, is out teaching. And we're told one day as he is teaching, a man, a person that in verse 25 is referred to as an expert of the law, begins asking Jesus some questions. Now, just so you know, a little Bible fact here, whenever you come across the phrase expert in the law in the Bible, don't think lawyer, don't think attorney like we have today. The law that is being talked about in that phrase, expert in the law, is the law of the Old Testament. It's basically the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which is the only Bible that they had. And an expert in the law was someone who was an expert in what the Old Testament taught. Honestly, the nearest equivalent of an expert in the law today that I could think of is that an expert in the law is, is like a professor at a Christian university. When you see expert in the law, think sort of seminary professor. That's what they were. And so one day, this seminary professor, this expert in the law, we're told, begins discussing with Jesus. And they begin to discuss a little bit about the Old Testament. And specifically, they begin to get in a discussion about one particular verse in the Old Testament. And that verse is Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. And we'll put this verse on the screen. But 1,400 years before the time of Jesus... God commanded the Jewish people the following, Leviticus 19.18. He said, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Let me read that again. God said this. He said, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the part of Leviticus 19.18 that Jesus and this expert in the law get in a discussion over is, is the phrase right in the middle where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, and for Jesus himself, 
That phrase right there was actually one of the most important phrases. It was one of the most important commandments in the entire Old Testament. In fact, some of you may know that at one point in Jesus' ministry, he was actually asked, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus said, there are actually two. He said, the most important commandment is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he said, the second most important commandment is just like it. And he said, it's Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is one of the most important commandments in the entire Bible. But if you begin to study Leviticus 19.18, if you begin to really pay attention to every word in Leviticus 19.18, you see that there's something very interesting about what is actually being commanded here. There's something very interesting about the way that this is phrased. And what is interesting about it? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a second. But before I do that, I just need to pause for a second because I need to tell you a little bit of a story, okay? This past week, I was remembering back to a couple of years ago. And a couple of years ago, I had taken my son, Lucas, to Disneyland. And he was probably two or three at the time. And we were waiting in line and, (coughs) excuse me, And we got to the front of the line, and I think we were waiting for Small World. I think that's where we were. And we got to the front of the line. We were just about ready to board the boat on on Small World. And if you've ever been to Disneyland before, you know that often when you get to the front of the line, right before you board your ride vehicle, there's a yellow strip, a yellow line painted on the ground. And this is sort of a safety line. It's a line that you're not supposed to cross, because if you get across this line, you get too close to the boat, too close to the water, too close to the track, whatever it may be. And so we were at the front of the line, we were waiting for our boat, and I really wasn't paying attention. And Lucas was definitely crossing this yellow line. In fact, he was sort of hanging out on the gate waiting for this boat to come. Well, I didn't see it, but one of the ride operators saw it. So she got on her microphone and she made this announcement to everybody. She said, stay behind the yellow line. Don't cross the yellow line. And I heard that and I realized, oh, she's talking about Lucas because no one else is standing in front of the yellow line. And so I said, Lucas, Lucas, you need to get behind the yellow line. Don't cross the yellow line. And you know what my son Lucas did? He did what I think most two, three, four, or five-year-olds would do. He decided that he was going to get as close to crossing the yellow line as he could without actually going over it. In fact, I thought what he did was so funny that unbeknownst to him, I took out my phone and I took a picture of it. And I found the picture this past week. Let's go ahead and put that picture on the screen. Isn't that awesome? So there's my son in his Crocs, right? And he's getting just as close to the edge of that yellow line. Now, show of hands. How many of you have kids that would probably do something like that? Okay, quite a number of you. Be honest here. How many of you adults would probably do something like that, right? Probably more than a handful of us. And what I love about that picture is I think it reveals something that is innate within every single one of us human beings. And that is that we are limit testers, aren't we? We're limit testers. And sometimes we love to see how close we can get to the edge of something without going over it. What does that have to do with Leviticus 19.18? Well, here's what it has to do with that. Let's go ahead and put that verse on the screen. So we, you and I, we would, (coughs) excuse me, you you and I would probably look at Leviticus 19.18. And you and I would probably determine that the most important word in Leviticus 19.18 is the word love, right? This is a verse about loving others. And we, I think, would be right in that. But for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they looked at Leviticus 19.18, and they determined that the most important word in Leviticus 19.18 was not the word love. 
You know what the most important word was? It was the word neighbor. It was the word neighbor. You see, what the Jewish people of Jesus' day observed is that in Leviticus 19.18, God does not command us to love everybody. No, God specifically says, love your neighbor. And because God specifically says, love your neighbor, because God does not command us to love everyone, you know what that means? Well, one of the things that that meant in their minds is therefore it means that there are certain people in this world that we can hate. There are certain people in this world that we don't have to love, or to use the language of this message, there are certain people in this word, world that we don't have to show kindness to. Now, I know to us that that may sound like it's splitting hairs, and it may sound very nitpicky, but understand, that is what Judaism at the time of Jesus had become. They were obsessed with words, and they were obsessed with nuances and, and shades of meanings in words, and they were limit testers. They wanted to see how close they could get to the line, how close did they get to, could get to breaking a command without actually breaking it. And they determined, listen, if God wanted us to love everybody, he would have said love everybody, but he didn't say that. He said love your neighbor. And so therefore, there are some people in this world that we are allowed by God to hate. And that's why there was a discussion a debate that began to appear around the time of Jesus. And the debate is found in this question that this expert of the law asks of Jesus in verse 29. Look at there. It says this. It says, but he, the expert in the law, wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? And that question right there reflected a debate that we had at the time of Jesus among Jewish people. They wanted to know who exactly was included in that definition of neighbor. Who exactly is God calling us to love here? And understand, they wanted to know who was included in that definition of neighbor, not so that they would know who they had to love, but they wanted to know who was included in neighbor so that they could know who they could hate, so that they could find out who they were allowed by God not to love, not to show kindness to. And understand, men and women, there was a reason for this. And they thought it was a very legitimate reason. Among other things, the Jewish people at the time of Jesus were being oppressed by a foreign nation. They were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was wicked. The Roman Empire was evil in the eyes of the Jewish people. In fact, the Romans stood for, against everything that God himself stood for. But there was a problem. The Romans were their neighbors. I mean, physically speaking, the Romans lived next door to the Jewish people. So do, do the Jewish people have to love the Romans? Well, most of the Jewish people at Jesus' day had already answered this question. And their answer was no. They concluded that when God said, love your neighbors, he's only talking about a fellow Jewish person. He's only talking about someone who looks, acts, thinks, believes the same way that you do. And everybody else, God would allow you to hate. And that's probably how this expert in the law expected Jesus to answer this question. Who is my neighbor? Oh, that's easy. Your neighbor is your fellow Jewish person. That's all you're required to love. Everybody else, you don't have to care about. And maybe, men and women, maybe, some of you are seeing right now why I think this is such an important and relevant passage for us today. Because I think this question of who don't I have to show kindness to I think this question of who don't I have to treat the way that I would want to be treated, I think it's a question that still gets asked today. You know, this past week I've been doing a lot of thinking, as you can imagine, on the golden rule and on the subject of kindness. And I observed something very interesting. 
You know, when I was a little kid, um, I heard a lot of teaching on the golden rule. And I heard a lot of teaching on the virtue of kindness. I had it drilled into me, the importance of, of being kind to others. And, and I had this from my, my parents. I had this from my school teachers. I had this from my Sunday school teachers. I had this from my little league coaches. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say once every couple of weeks, I heard how important it was to treat others the way that I would want to be treated. And I'm sure many of you are in the same boat. As kids, we hear these sort of lessons a lot. But here's what I've observed. As adults, we don't hear this very much anymore, do we? As adults, we don't get a lot of teaching on the importance of kindness, on the importance of treating others the way that we would want to be treated. About the only place we probably hear it is in the church. And when was the last message that you heard on the golden rule? It hasn't been in the past six and a half years because I haven't taught on it. I don't think Matthew has either. And I think that's indicative of something. You see, I think something happens to us when we become adults. I think we think, you know, teaching the golden rule, teaching kindness, that's good for our kids. Our kid need, kids need to learn that lesson. But, but as we become adults, we start to get a little bit more jaded, and we start to get a little bit more cynical. And we, and we start to think, let's be realistic here. And we start to come to the conclusion that not only is it nearly impossible to treat everybody the way that we would want to be treated, in some cases it's actually irresponsible. In some cases it's actually reckless. This is what we're seeing, I think, right now in the political realm in the United States. What is going on right now in politics? Well, here's my take on it, okay? You have these two sides, blue states and red states, Democrats and Republicans. And especially on the extreme edges of these sides, the extreme ends of these sides, each group believes that the other group is wrong. And not only does each group believe that the other group is wrong, each group actually believes that the other group is dangerous. That if their ideas for the United States get implemented, that it's going to lead our country down a dangerous path. And therefore, each side has decided, not only won't I show kindness to the other side, I shouldn't show kindness to the other side. Because they're dangerous. And they need to be stopped. And that's what we're seeing almost every night on the nightly news. And that's what we're seeing going on in politics. But you know what? This sort of thinking is not just limited to politics. People do this in religion as well. I mean, I look at all of you. Listen, I, I will bend over backwards to help all of you. I, of course, want to show kindness to you. You're my people. We, we believe the same things. We want the same things for this world. So, of course, it's easy for me to treat you the way that I want to be treated. But how about the Jehovah's Witness who comes and knocks on my door once a month? I think they're dangerous. They're leading people astray. A am I really to treat them the way that I would treat you, the way that I would want to be treated, even when some of them get a little bit aggressive with me? So some people do this with religion. And some people do this in just a whole host of different issues. Some people, a lot of people, in fact, have a philosophy that says treat others the way they're treating you. I'll be kind to you as long as you're kind to me, but if you're not kind to me anymore, I can't be expected to be kind to you anymore. Other people have an attitude that says, well, just as long as you're grateful, right? I will bend over backwards to help you. All I want is a thanks. But if you're not grateful, you know, last week I, I went over, I've been over backwards to help Margaret. And, 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 and even though I did all this for Margaret, she didn't even have the common decency to pick up her cell phone and text me a message of thank you. I'll tell you what, that's the last time I ever go out of my way to help Margaret again. 
Now, I know nobody at this church has ever thought that way before. This is for those over at Eastside, right? I know that. <laughs> but you get my point, don't you? And what happens as adults is we start to come up with a whole host of reasons to justify why we can't, why we won't, why in some cases we even shouldn't show kindness to others. And this is natural. We're, we're limit testers, aren't we? I mean, God can't really expect me to show kindness to everyone, can he? God can't really expect me to treat everyone the way I want to be treated, can he? Can he? Well, let's see what God says. Verse 30 of this passage. This expert in the law asks the question, who's my neighbor? Which is really a question, who don't I have to love? In response to that, Jesus says this, verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Stop right there. So here Jesus tells this story. It's not a true story, but it has all the hallmarks of a true story, especially this first verse. Jesus tells of a man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is a road that many Jewish people at Jesus' day would have been familiar with. In fact, in fact, they would have feared this road. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile journey, and it had earned the nickname the Bloody Way. The Bloody Way, because it was a very dangerous trip. It was full of all these twists and turns, and robbers loved to hang around some of the turns and jump out at unsuspecting travelers. And that's exactly what happens to this particular individual. We're told in verse 30 that he is attacked by a group of robbers. He's stripped naked, he's beaten, and then he's left on the side of the road half dead. And anybody listening to Jesus tell this, they would have thought after this first verse here, they would have thought this man is done for, this man is as good as dead. Why? Well, it's because this road was so dangerous, many people did not like to travel it, and so it could be hours, it could even be a full day before anybody stumbled across this particular man. And so they would have thought this man is dead. But as you continue on in this story, you find out it's a very abnormal day on the road to Jericho. Because on this particular day, not one, not two, but three different individuals, one after the other, are traveling down this particular road. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Kind of sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, doesn't it? A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. We're heading into a bar, right? A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan are heading down this particular road one after the other. And for the sake of time, I don't have the ability to go into as much detail on all these individuals I would like, and that's okay because I know many of you know this story. But suffice to say, the first two individuals, the priests and the Levite, who were the clergy of that day, the pastors of that day, when they come across this man lying half dead on the side of the road, what is it that they do? Well, they don't do anything. In fact, Jesus tells us that they see this man, likely a Jewish man, they see this man and they literally walk to the other side of the road so that they can get as far away from him as possible. And they leave him essentially to die. Now, a lot has been written over the years as to why they do that. Honestly, all of that is hearsay. Jesus doesn't tell us. And at the end of the day, I don't think it really matters because it's clear in the story the emphasis is not on these first two individuals, but the emphasis is on the third individual, the person who comes after the priest and the Levite. Because after the priest and the Levites skip over this man, a third man, a third individual, appears on the road. And his story is told starting for us in verse 33. Look with me there. <coughs> but it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. 
And so here we see this third individual. What does he do? He does what the other two don't. He shows kindness to this man. In fact, he goes above and beyond. We're told that he goes to this man, he bandages his wounds, he gives him medicine, he takes this man, he puts it on his own donkey, he travels to the local inn, he stays with this man overnight in the inn to take care of him. The next morning, he takes out two days of his own wages, and he pays it to the innkeeper, and he says, take care of this man for the next week, and I'll return in several days, and if there's any outstanding bill, I will pay it. I mean, it's just extraordinary. But by far the most extraordinary part of what is told in this story is who this third individual is identified as. And who is he? Who is the only one to show kindness in this story? It's not a priest. It's not a Levite. It's not even an ordinary Jewish citizen. Who is it? It's a Samaritan. It's a Samaritan. Now I know that that does not mean very much to many of us here today. But you cannot overestimate how shocking that would have been to the people listening to this story. Simply put, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans almost as much as, in fact, maybe just as much as they hated the Romans. Who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were a group of people who lived in a small city in northern Israel, right in the middle, called Samaria. Still exists today, in fact. But the Samaritans were more than just a group of people who lived in a particular city. They were like a cult of Judaism. They were like a sect of Judaism. They had created their own religion. And what they had done is they had taken some of the Jewish beliefs, but like many cults do, they mixed in their own mixed up beliefs as well. For example, many Samaritans believed in the God of the Jewish people, but they also believed in other gods as well, and they worshipped those gods. And so they created a religion that was very dangerous for the Jewish people. And for that reason, the Jews and the Samaritans, there was this constant battle between them, and sometimes that battle turned physical. We have records of wars that were fought between these two particular groups of people. In fact, in fact, this is interesting, to show you just how much the Jewish people hated the Samaritans, continue on in verse 36. After Jesus tells this story, there's this final little exchange between Jesus and the expert of the law. Verse 36, Jesus says this, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, the expert of the law replied the one who had mercy on him Jesus told him go and do likewise now you know what stands out about that particular exchange here's what stands out to most scholars most scholars observe the fact that the expert of the law he can't even bring himself to say Samaritan see Jesus says who was a neighbor to this man and the expert in the law all he can say is the one who had mercy on him he doesn't even want to say the word Samaritan that's how much the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. And so going back to the question that started this story in the first place, who is my neighbor? No Jewish person at this time, practically no Jewish person at this time, would have ever included a Samaritan in that definition. They thought God hated the Samaritans, and therefore they could have hated the Samaritans as well. So you know what that means in relation to this story. That means that the man lying half dead on the side of the road was helped by a non-neighbor. The man lying half dead on the side of the road was helped by someone who, if the situation had been reversed, he likely would have not helped himself. If it was the Samaritan lying half dead on the side of the road and this Jewish man walking down the road, 
You know what he would have done? He probably would have done what the priest and Levite did. He probably would have crossed to the other side of the road, completely avoided him, and worst of all, he probably would have gone to bed that night thinking God was pleased with the decision that he made. This story, this story is is a modern-day Palestinian being helped by a modern-day Israelite Jew. This story is, 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 a, is a, a slave owner of the Civil War era being helped by one of his slaves. This story, this story is Hillary Clinton being helped by Donald Trump, okay? That's how extraordinary this story is. This man was helped by someone that he probably wouldn't have helped himself. And therein lies the lesson. What's Jesus trying to get across in this story? What's the point? Well, it goes back to what I said at the beginning. As adults, we come up with all these reasons why we can't, why we shouldn't, why we won't show kindness to other people, why we won't treat others in the way that they want to be treated. They're of a different political party. They're of a different religion. They're not grateful, whatever it may be. And all these reasons that we come up with, man, they are airtight in our minds. We could defend them in a court of law. They all sound great in theory. But here's the deal. When we ourselves are in a position of need, when we ourselves are in a desperate situation, do we care who it is that helps us? Do we care who it is that shows kindness to us? No. When you're in a desperate situation, you don't care who shows kindness to you. You don't care if the person who shows kindness to you is someone that you would have struggled showing kindness to yourself. When you're in a desperate situation, you just want help. You just want to be shown kindness. If my car breaks down in the middle of a dangerous neighborhood in the middle of the night... I don't care if the person who comes to my rescue is a Republican, is a Democrat, is a Jehovah's Witness. I don't care if the person who comes to my rescue is a Bruin. I'll even accept help from them. (laughs) Because when you're in need, you don't care where help comes from. You just want help. And so, and this is the heart of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I think it often gets missed when it gets taught. If that's the case, Since when we are in a place of need, we don't care who shows kindness to us, why would we ever refuse to show kindness to others? Since when we're in a place of need, we don't care who helps us out. We wouldn't refuse help or kindness from anybody. Why would we ever refuse to show kindness to other people? See, the story that Jesus is telling here is meant to cut through all of the excuses, all of the justifications that we come up with for why we can't treat others the way that we ourselves would want to be treated. Those, uh, you know, I may have great reasons in my head right now for why I can't show kindness to you. But I'll tell you what. If I'm in a place of need, I sure hope you aren't as stingy with your kindness as I can be. Since when we're in a place of need, we don't care who shows kindness to us. Why would we ever refuse to show kindness to others? And that's why the ultimate lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan is really, really simple. Just be kind to everyone. Just treat everyone the way that you yourself would want to be treated. John Wesley, the great giant of the faith from years ago, put it this way. He said, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the ways you can, and all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. I don't know about you, but to me it sounds a lot like the statement I had you repeat at the beginning. I think maybe John stole that from me. 
kindness to all people at all times in all places. And I know this is simple. We are not mining the depths of theology here at Friends Church this weekend. But you know what? Don't underestimate the power of even the simplest lessons of the Christian faith. I was remembering this past week. I was remembering the, the, the nastiest email that I've ever received as a pastor. This was several years ago. And I don't, I don't get a lot of bad emails. But this one, man, this one was the insults this guy threw at me. It was clear. He just hated me. And the tone that he took, it was just horrible. And there aren't a lot of things that get my blood boiling. But this email got my blood boiling. So I sat down at the computer, and I decided I was going to fight fire with fire. And so I started this email, and I was going to fight insult with insult, and I was going to respond to him the exact same way that he responded to me. But after I got about halfway through this email, at about page five or six or so, (laughs) I think the Holy Spirit stopped me. I know the Holy Spirit stopped me. And And I realized I can't send this email. And so I deleted it. And I started a brand new email. And in this new email, I was just kind. I told this man that I heard his concerns. I apologized for anything I did that might have offended him. And I said that I would pray about the things that he said in this email. And if there is anything that God wants me to change, I always want to be open to that. And I was just kind, and I sent him that email. A few hours later, I received a response back. His entire tone had changed. In fact, he he asked for forgiveness in his subsequent email. And you know what? This man today is now one of my best friends. Actually, that last part isn't true. It's not. (laughs) Just sounded really good, right? I, I don't even know who he is. He may be sitting out here. I'd like to be your friend if you want to be my friend. I haven't lost you all, have I? <laughs> but you know what? That, <coughs> that email, that, that whole experience, it taught me a really important lesson. Anybody, anybody can treat someone else the way they're treating you. That's the natural thing to do. But when you treat others, not the way they're treating you, but when you treat others the way you want to be treated, something supernatural can happen in that moment. Truly it can. Now, don't get me wrong in all of this, men and women, okay? Don't get me wrong. Being kind to others doesn't mean we can't disagree with people and tell them we're di- we disagree with them. Of course we can. Being kind to others doesn't mean we don't want justice done for wrongdoers or we can't show tough love to, to rebellious teenagers. Of course we can do that. God disciplines us. We can discipline others. And being kind to others doesn't mean that we can't set boundaries and protect ourselves and our families against people who want to do us harm. The Bible allows us to do that. But all these things, all these things, they're done not out of of hate and anger. They're done with a spirit of love. And they're done ultimately with a hope towards redemption. Redeeming that person, redeeming that situation, redeeming that relationship. And so it looks different to different people. The end result is the same. Kindness. To all people at all times in all situations. You struggling with a neighbor right now? Neighbors treating you really, really bad. I'm sorry about that. That's tough. But even still, can you treat them the way you want to be treated, not the way they're treating you? You struggling with a family member, especially at this time of year, I I know that can happen, and, and we have short fuses. Even still, can you be kind to them? You're struggling with your boss. You're struggling with someone at work. Just show them kindness. And just see what happens. 
See where it leads. That's what I love about the golden rule. It's hard to implement. I'll admit it's hard to implement. But it's so simple because it takes all the guesswork out. How do you deal with a tough situation? Just think, how would I like to be treated in this situation? And do the same thing to someone else. And that's it. You know, I was thinking this past week, and I'll close with this. I was thinking this past week. When it comes to this area of kindness, I don't want to be a limit tester. I don't want to see how close I can get to, 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 to breaking kindness without actually doing it. I actually want to get as far away from that as possible. And here's what I mean by that. I want to be the type of person that when I'm driving on the freeway and unexpectedly traffic starts, there's a backup. I want to be the type of person that my first instinct is not, oh man, now I'm going to be late. This is, this is a pain. But I want to be the type of person where my first instinct is, I hope there's not an accident. And if there is, I hope the people are okay. And God, I pray for those people and I pray for their family members. I want to be the type of person that when I'm at the supermarket and I'm about ready to to walk into the supermarket and, and there's a homeless person sitting in front of one of the doors asking for money, that my first instinct isn't to go and find the other entrance so I can avoid them. But my first instinct is to ask God, God, is there anything I can do to help that person? Is there anything I can buy in that store that I could give to that person? I want to be the type of person that when someone is mean to me, when someone is rude to me, my first instinct is not, what is their problem? But instead, my first instinct is, man, they must be having a tough day and they need an extra dose of kindness. That's the type of person I want to be. And I'm sure many of you would like to be that as well. And how do we be that type of person? It starts right now today, practicing this. Let's end this message how we began it. Repeat after me. Kindness to all people, at all times, in all places. This week, let's put that into practice and let's go about changing our world. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father God, I would um, just be missing a major point in all of this, Lord if I didn't just acknowledge that the kindness you asked us to show others was a kindness that was first shown to us by Jesus on the cross. And God, that is the model for our kindness. That while we were enemies of you, Father, um, you loved us enough to send your son, Jesus, Lord. And that's why you tell us to love our enemies. That's why you tell us to be kind to everybody. God, we cannot do this on our own. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And so, Lord, I pray that this week we would be sensitive to his leading in our life, God. I pray that you would open our eyes to people in need that we can help, Lord. I pray that you'd give us a gentle heart and a heart of compassion towards people, even the meanest people, even the angriest people that we encounter throughout the week, Lord, and that our desire would just be to show kindness and leave the rest up to you, Father. I thank you, Lord. I thank you that you never ask us to do something. You don't ask us to do something that you haven't done yourself in this area, God. I thank you for the kindness that you showed us through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we close this service with the final song of praise, God, I pray that this would just be an offering to you of thanksgiving for what you have done for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.